Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Welcome to Massive Small Stories. Um, I'm here today with my uh, co-host, Liam. Greetings. Good, Liam. Have a good Christmas. I had a really good Christmas. It was the usual sort of combination of reckless drinking, uh, mental grandkids tearing the house apart and emptying the dishwasher. Fantastic. That was my career. I love it, yeah. yeah. There well, must be a word for that sense of almost despair when you get up in the morning early, everyone's in bed, and you go, and go oh, God, I've got to empty the dishwasher again. You yeah. open it and there's 50,000 plates and cups and then you do it. Yeah, and we also say that when the grandkids come around, they think, oh, we love having them, but... I wish they'd leave us, leave us to sleep for another hour or something. <laughs> well, I fall into the, uh, the the role of granddad will get up with you in the morning no matter no, no how matter much happen, Guinness yeah. he's yeah. drunk the night before. So yeah. uh, that was great. Did you get any good prezies? I got a really good prezzy. I got two really good prezies. One called Unbuilt, a book called Unbuilt. And the other one is um, Humanised by Thomas Heatherwick, uh, who we really need to get on the show. I think the Humanised story here is pretty much in line with what we're talking about in Massive Small is how do we get back to the human scale? And I also listened to his BBC series um, today, and uh, which brings us to our guest today, Ewan Mills. Uh, Ewan is uh, an urban designer and architect, a community champion, and um, Ewan featured on the BBC series of Building Soul with Thomas Heatherwick. And uh, it was just by coincidence that I was listening to t- today, and uh, and his his lovely voice came out. So welcome, Ewan. Good to have you on board. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're very Good. welcome. Now, Ewan and I worked together uh, at a company called Urban Initiatives, sometimes referred to as UI. I think it was about 10, no, maybe a bit longer, 13 years ago, Ewan. And uh, I was fortunate to have a really bright bunch of young people working with me, and Ewan was one of them. And I always knew he was going to go on to do some interesting things. God, what were you like as a boss? We must ask him that. He was great. He was inspirational. Kelvin was always inspirational. Uh, I mean, uh, kind of a, a lot of what I do now, I think I, uh, 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 I have, I, I have, kind of learned from Kelvin. So, so yeah, Kelvin was a great boss. Well, checks it's in hard. the post, okay. <laughs> hard to imagine, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, we had, we had, I think we had a fascinating time. The time was right for us to do what we were doing, and uh, it was a nice, nice crowd working there. And I've stayed in contact with many of them, and Ewan was one of them. I, I always imagined would go on to do some wonderful things. And um, I know that when you left UI, you went on to start a, a neighborhood forum. Do you want to tell us about that? Um? Yeah, sure. So, so, so my background's in architecture, but I think, I think similar to, 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 to you, Kelvin, and a lot of others from the, what I call the urban initiatives diaspora, I think we're all frustrated architects. We weren't really happy with, with the way the architecture was working. And so when, when, when I set up the, the neighborhood forum, I had just moved to this, to this area in East London called Laura Clapton. That was, it was, it was famously known as as Murder Mile. The area was known as Murder Mile. There was a lot of there was a there, it was a very high crime area. It was it was it was very much rough around the edges, but what, that made it affordable. 
right? So I was fortunate enough to be able to 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 buy a flat there back back in the day. Was and obviously, I, I wanted to pay you enough. Probably was yes, pay you enough. Probably was okay. Is, it, is it multi-millionaires mile now? Yeah. <laughs> not quite, not quite. But we're getting there. We're getting there. But but I mean, this is this is this is the thing, right? So I had some time. I, w- I wanted to 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 do what I did professionally, what we we're doing at Urban Initiatives, but do it where in the place where I lived. Uh, and so I was interested in how can I get how can we get the community together to to to, to make things better, right? There was a huge number of, of uh, along the center of the the neighborhood runs a, a high street called Chatsworth Road, and there was I think it was fifty percent of the shops were closed down at the time. So we're interested in doing doing things around that. How can we revitalize this area, etc. And 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 it worked quite well. We got we got a lot of people uh, doing lots of things. We did things like we we set up a street market. We set up a a local business loyalty card to to encourage people to shop locally. We set up a socially minded estate agent where because we we got to know know all the landlords on the high street, we could we could help get the right connect the right people. With 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 right properties, and and in a way it was a bit too good, because soon after that the area started gentrifying very very fast, right? And you can cut to five years after this was I think two thousand and eleven. It was just during the time where the localism act came up. Cut five years later, we had kind of four or five estate agents opening up, and it felt like we knew rent prices and property prices are pretty much kind of doubled, if not tripled, in some areas. That that what we did. Had had some good impacts, but also some negative impacts. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a natural sort of process, isn't it? Gentrification follows. You made the place cool, and uh, you made it attractive, and that's that's what happens, unfortunately. So, what happens next? You you went on to join the mayor's office, didn't you? That was the yeah yeah. I, I, somehow, I'm, I'm still not quite sure when I look back at how I managed to get this job, but but I ended up being the only urban designer within the within the Greater London Authority's planning team. So there's a planning team of about. 20 or so people, and and their job was twofold. One, to write planning policy, and two, to comment on big major developments that were happening across London. And uh, uh, part of their role was also to comment on the design and the layout of all these developments, but they didn't have an urban designer at the time. So so, so I joined and I slightly elbowed my way into all sorts of different meetings and uh, uh, eventually kind of ended up writing a lot of the, the design policies in London plan at the time. And and also, I was on this treadmill of doing pre-application meetings. So these are meetings with big developers. They pay something like £7,000 for a two-hour meeting, right? So there's big formal meetings with, with me and a couple of colleagues where we basically discuss and try and influence or change what, what, what they wanted to do to, to, to make it more in keeping with the policy that we're writing. And I think I spent about six years there and I think I assessed about 1,500 major developments. And these are the big stuff, right? The, the yeah. big developers, the big architects, big names. That's all the stuff that could be called in by the mayor. That was probably exactly. the threat in some ways. That's it. So was it in Boris's days or was it Boris Sadiq's days? It's Boris it, was, days. It, it, was, it, was, it was very much in Boris's days. And it, it, coincidentally, and it was purely coincidence that I left the GLA when Boris left the GLA and then I joined central government when he joined central government. But that no, was pure right, coincidence, yeah. I have to tell people. Yeah, I, I made the mistake of writing a nasty blog on, on Boris, calling him the artful bodger. And the bloated BMF talking about the scale of some of those big developments that were coming through. And uh, so as a result, I wasn't invited to number 10 for 10 years. Is that why you've not been on the honours <laughs> list? I've never been on the honours list. No, yeah. no, no. I wrote, anyway, that's what happens when you open your big mouth. <laughs> and I was told that. I was told by someone, you know, you're not really wanted here. You know. Uh, so um, You must have heard that a lot in your life, though. I did, I did, <laughs> yeah. From a lot of women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, good. So that must have been a fascinating time because I can imagine some of those projects that were coming through at the time. And I, I, 
managed to sit on Cape on some of these reviews of some of these big projects and just imagine how you can it's, it's trying to shift the titanic most of the time because most most of the time people's ideas are fixed on what they want and they, yeah. they find it incredibly difficult to, it's a long time to to be there six did you say you were there for six years yeah I was, did, you must have find it, did you find it frustrating going from that real sort of gritty neighborhood into seven thousand pound an hour yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, both frustrating, but also kind of quite fulfilling because all, all of a sudden I had lots of power, right? So on one hand, I was working for a volunteer organization and we had no money and we we're trying to, to 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 try and influence Hackney Council to open a street market. And then next day I was sitting across big property developers telling them what to do, right? So it was quite a strange <laughs> contrast, but it was fascinating. And I think, and I learned a huge amount because I was in a position that I could ask all the stupid questions, right? Well, why are you doing that? Why can we do that instead? So I just... For me, it was just six years of of, of of learning and absorbing what the the, the current kind of industry kind of uh, is building and how they're building, and also learning about architects, right? Because I said again, as I said at the beginning, I was to a certain extent I'm a frustrated architect. I was never happy with what architects were doing. I wanted to do more. I wanted. I was interested in cities. I was interested in people, and uh, and I was really interested in how I could try and influence the architecture world. How were we actually building the built environment? Because there was lots of different types of architects that I met, and some were actually very good. Right? And a lot of the architects that I had these meetings with were doing really good housing, really good quality. They were thinking about cities. They were thinking about placemaking. They were thinking about people. Whilst others who were just as infamous were doing some absolutely terrible things. And it, I, I couldn't come to terms with how come all these different architects that are having huge position of influence are doing have got such a different approach to how we build cities. Let's just go right back to the, the beginning. You've had a really, really interesting career. What motivates all? How did you end up um, in this world of uh, housing and communities? What's, uh, what's good question. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to partly blame it on Kelvin, right? <laughs> partly oh, Kelvin because okay. kind of he shaped my kind of early early careers. No, I've always loved cities. I grew up in São Paulo in Brazil, right? For the first kind of uh, uh, 15 years of my life, I was in I was in this huge city, right? Four or five times the size of London. Uh, and I just love cities. And I, I was getting, when I moved to London, I was just getting really pissed off with how much we were doing things that undermined that urbanity, the stuff which I love about cities. I was seeing these developments with huge kind of walls of blank frontages and people just messing things up and a lot of money going into it. And it was incredibly frustrating, right? So I think I think kind of what drives it is how can we, how can we continue to make cities better and how can we stop messing them up? I mean, we messed them up really badly in the kind of the 60s and the 70s, but okay, we didn't have the technologies and we didn't really know then. Now we do. So why are we still getting it wrong? I think the funny thing that happened, there was a time at which, um, I think sort of post-CABE, this was commissioned for the architecture and the built environment, there was a kind of feeling that as, as long as it's well-designed, it's okay. So design, became, design came to the forefront of everything. And actually design is only part of something. So I think in many ways we've been laboring under the fact that, um, okay, it's well-designed, therefore we can let it through. But well-designed in aesthetic terms doesn't mean well-designed in people terms. And I think we saw we saw a lot of those sort of projects coming through in those sort of years, that projects that just didn't seem to make sense. You know, projects of bigness that um, that never seemed to, to allow urbanism to sort of develop at the outset. So yeah. what, would, what would have been your big success cases and what would be your worst cases without necessarily naming names? But, yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, it's hard because... It, it was, uh, I mean, kind of interesting, kind of working for such a big organization, we'd be kind of uh, uh, quite quite often we'd be at the receiving a lot of criticism, right? So people would, when when eventually these big schemes were approved and sometimes built, uh, people would be incredibly critical. 
Uh, and I'd kind of sit there and kind of read the articles by all the different architecture critics kind of, uh, and and I knew what these developments were like before, but when they first came to us, yeah. right? So what we're seeing, what's built is stuff which has been influenced by planners, sometimes quite a lot, quite dramatically, right? It might not be perfect yet, but it's a lot better than what, what came there. And it was always very frustrating for me thinking, you should just what they wanted to build originally. Okay, this isn't quite right, but look, what like we, we actually kind of raised the bar a good bit it's probably still not as as good as it should be, but but it's kind of we definitely raised the bar. So I think, and I think I can I look at developments across across London now, and I see things like like uh, uh, doors on streets, which were never there in the original design, yeah. right? So small things, things like like new streets, improved permeability, uh, kind of better orientation of blocks and things like that, which which in the original designs were were never really a priority. Maybe the buildings are still a bit too tall and maybe not very attractive, but but some of these kind of small uh, kind of changes make a big difference to the, the way the places actually work. Is there a part of London that you walk through and you go, I did that? Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing with the GLA is it, it, it's all over the place. I think the scary thing is that sometimes I go to places that I don't usually go to in London and I recognise this building from somewhere and I'm never quite sure where. And then all of a sudden <laughs> I realise, oh, I remember seeing the renderings 10 years ago or six years ago. Uh, uh, and and then all of a sudden the, I, the floor plans always kind of come back to the forefront and I, and I remember seeing, oh, well, actually we got them to to rearrange the, the uh, how they were uh, laying out their flats to get improved quality and things like that. You want to write a book, you know, you want to write a book on, you should call it what it looked like before we got involved. Like this unbuilt book that I got. Uh, or if you think this is today. shit. If you, you think this is shit, you should have seen what it looked like before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you'll, sell a, you'll sell a fortune. You get a BBC yeah. series alongside yeah. Thomas Heatherwick as well, you know. And people want to hear this today. I mean, it's quite interesting in his, in his talk where he talks about the blandness of modernism and the blandness of... Um, of, of architecture today. And, and I, I kind of agree with you in, in one sense that not everything needs to be different. I think you want you want familiarity and you want conformity. You want that sort of balance between things. But I certainly don't think you want some of the stuff that we've been designing in recent years. Everything seems to be the product of a computer. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think, I mean, I think, Kevin, it might have even been, you, I mean, you use the term the new norm, right? Yeah. yeah. And and this is the, the, the new normal and kind of the, the, the background stuff. And I think that's really important. And, and I mean, uh, kind of nowadays we criticize a lot of a lot of the kind of modernist stuff but but let's not forget that the the modernist architects used to used to kind of complain about how boring victorian streets were or georgian yeah. streets all the buildings were identical kind of monotonous and boring and all these you see all these words in the literature right and and nowadays i mean we love victorian streets and we love kind of georgian streets so i think i think i always get a bit worried when architects want to make things interesting I don't think that's the role of an architect. I think the role of an architect is to make it work. Yeah. What will make things interesting are going to be the people, right? The way yeah. that the people use a place, and you just have to kind of create the the structure for the, for, for people to, to to use it in in new and original ways. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, I think the other thing that's missing, I think, is that the concept of the human scale, which I think he's touching on in his book Humanize, that we've we've lost the sense of where the person fits in to this big big scheme of things. And I think when we go back to Georgian and Victorian times, we, we knew we could identify with how big, a how big a person was relative to that particular building. We don't seem to be able to do that now. If you sort of superimpose a, any elevation of any building, you almost got to put a, you know, a scale rod next to it or a couple of feet next to it to say this is actually how big it is because we lost sight of what it actually means most of the time. So going back to to what you learned in the UI days and how you sort of applied some of those principles around, as you mentioned, doors on streets and those sorts of things. Um, 
What, what do you think? If you, if you go back and say, you know, if I go back and look at, at the scheme that I think I influenced the most, um, what more do you think could have been done? I suppose there's always more that can be done, but um, what, do you, what do you think was missing yeah. ultimately? Yeah. I, 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 I think that's a good question because I, I remember kind of sitting in these meetings thinking I have to pick my fights, yeah. right? There's too much that, like there's so much there, right? Someone's coming up with a development. There's there's parking ratios. There's the 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 flat layouts. There's a unit mix. There's amount of affordable housing. There's a density. There's the building height. There's there's the the elevations. There's a the design of the elevation. There was so much there, yeah. and I always I, I had to somehow kind of think, okay, well, what is the most important thing, right? What are the two three most important things which I can actually influence and make a difference in, uh, and what I kind of kind of a conclusion which I came, which is probably not a very uh, urban initiatives kind of mindset is that uh, is that some things maybe don't matter as much as we think they do. Things like yeah. the materials of the buildings, the the elevations of the buildings, and if I dare say, even the height of the building doesn't matter that much. What really matters is how buildings hit the street, right? Yeah. The way that we perceive kind of the, the built environment is up to two, three stories, right? So we're quite often kind of thinking about typologies. Well, let's get that working, right? The first two, three, four stories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, think about overshadowing things like that. But then what happens up at the top, if it, if the tower, whether a tower is 20 stories or 50 stories, does it really make a difference on the street? No, I think you're probably right. I mean, I, I, but I suppose the point is about when you get a tall building, that's a wholly immersive tall building like you find in New York. You know, it's a typological building of tallness. It seems to work a hell of a lot better than when we do tall buildings. They tend to sort of be points in a podium block, you know what I mean, where you get their three-story, but you get this strange relationship of of where the building is. It doesn't sit on the street. The tallness doesn't sit on the street like it does in, say, in a New York skyscraper. So it's, there's always a there's always a tension between that. And I think um, because we constantly play with building height as being one of those sort of variables, and we don't actually say, and I think our our, our Quite often, what we're doing is to try and suppress that height. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of normal instinct. We kind of lose the sense of what it is we're setting out to achieve. I think, in some ways, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think one of the challenges with kind of being in the kind of in the in the in the planning world and in London in particular is that you have this immense pressure for housing, right? We need to build homes. The hub, we've got this like there's just not enough homes. Uh, I think London's population increases nowadays about uh, about 300 to 400 people every day. There's an extra 300 to 400 people here. Sundays, yeah. bank holidays included, right? So there's a lot of new people every single day in London and people need homes, right? So I think there is there is this other aspect here, which I think is also really interesting and we have to consider uh, uh, in when we think about kind of city building or kind of designing uh, uh, places. Now, the challenge is that a lot of those high-rise buildings were going into the investment market. They weren't actually forming housing for, for local people. That was the sort of the big challenge. And I think I've always said we should try and separate those two, separate something from the investment market to what I call the neighbourhood the neighborhood building type model. And I think we lost sight of that. We kind of conflated. We put these two together and imagined that we'd create quality of place when, um, when uh, we knew we weren't doing that. And I think this comes to your point that, that that kind of back in the days of Cape, we used to think design could solve everything, yeah. but design is only a part of it, right? The business model, the ownership structure, all these other things are just as important. Yeah. And I think I think I think the issue there is to do with how we how we how we fund these buildings quite often, right? We need to sell things off plan to be able to get enough money to be able to do something. So the whole kind of uh, uh, yeah kind of business side and kind of financial side of that of of, of that has a huge influence in what we end up building and how it actually works in the end of the day. Yeah. And then you left the mayor's office and went to work for central government. 
Well, well, uh, not not quite. I had kind of uh, kind of four years in between. I was incredibly frustrated by my by the end of my six years at the mayor's office. Uh, 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 partly for, for the lack of consistency in the the planning system, right? Like we were we were we were approving some things that that w- that we thought were great, good, and we made it better. Other things that we thought were absolutely terrible, but there was someone up higher up said, "No, actually, this is this this is this is better if we if we if we let it through." Uh, so that kind of lack of objectivity and lack of kind of consistency was really frustrating. Uh, and and I was really interested in the power of technology, right? The web was something that we never talk about in all this, this this world, right? Kind of like meanwhile, kind of we're sitting there in the, in the same kind of planning departments with the same kind of big books of rules and and things. And meanwhile, kind of Uber and Deliveroo were appearing and completely changing the way that we live in cities. So I was really interested in kind of this this, this you, other you thing. You use the phrase the Uber of architecture. I'm going to turn you off. <laughs> no, I'm not going to use the Uber of architecture. <laughs> uh, I have, yeah, I'm sure we can. I'm sure. I'm sure I can slip it in somehow. But uh, slip it in. Slip but, it in. But, but, no, does. <laughs> but 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 there was this change happening, and this change wasn't really touching the world of architecture yeah. and and urbanism, right? And and so so after my time at the mayor's office, I joined uh, this. Uh, it's kind of like a, a think tank. It was called Future Cities Catapult at the time. It's an innovation hub, central government funded innovation hub. Uh, looking at how could we use technology to make cities better. I thought it was a fascinating place, actually, because they put uh, people like British Standards in there and they put um, the guys who done Ordnance Survey, people like that. They were said to these organisations, you've got an incredible wealth of knowledge. How do you uh, take that knowledge out and how do you use it to build new technologies? Did, did it work? I think it worked where I was because I got hosted at the, at the Ordnance Survey guys on the top floor. Uh, yeah. What do they call it? Um, I've got Geovation. Geovation Hub, Geovation Hub. They gave me a desk for a couple of years, and I, I thought it was really quite interesting. My, my role was then to try and help mentor other people in return for give, be given desk space. I could mentor other people who are working on different technological mm-hmm. solutions, apps, or whatever they were. Um, and I think a lot of stuff did come through that organisation. Uh, there's yeah. certainly some interesting characters working at Future Cities Catapult who've gone on to do some interesting stuff. Dan Hill has gone off to Melbourne now, I think, if I'm not mistaken. No, I was going to say. I mean, it was an interesting organisation because it had money. Uh, uh, and it had a kind of uh, uh, an objective, right? Kind of making cities better using technology. But then it, it allowed us to explore things in the middle, right? So it was quite free. It was a really freeing space. So there was a lot of, a, I think that's the way that you, you you innovate, right? You have to give people the space to think, right? The space to kind of play around and get things wrong and things like that. And that's where, where, where with kind of another couple of colleagues, we started thinking about, well, okay, imagine what would be a, a, a planning system reflective of the internet era? Right. What would that what what how what would an ideal world be there where it wasn't kind of kind of negotiations kind of happening inside uh, uh, meeting rooms and 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 fat books full of rules that no one actually reads and reports produced to justify the rules and no one reads the reports and all this information being produced and hundreds of consultants kind of uh, taking up a lot of money and a lot of time and the whole thing being a bit of an not even an art right more of a kind of you just fudge the whole process through and this is in the GLA right so this is in a kind of a big organization so uh so 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 the, at the future cities catapult we started exploring okay what what could a technologically driven planning system actually look like right what could it actually do what could how could we start making use of some of these 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 kind of technologies that lots of other industries were were, were being transformed by uh what happened if we applied that to the planning system that's why we called you our techno urbanist um I think it's probably the Best description of what you've been doing. Tell us, 
tell us how you took because uh, I, I, I'm, I constantly fight the planning system as something that's so incredibly out of date, and so incredibly driven by a whole set of social utopian rules that really don't matter anymore. And I actually find the problem about the planning system is it's lost its public purpose. You know, why are we, why are we doing it? You know, what is, what's in it for people? It tends to be so focused on the process of planning that it's lost sight of what it's, it's really looking to achieve. Um, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with this, this idea of public purpose? Yeah, kind of, it's really hard because, uh, I mean, kind of the plan, there's a, there's a judicial framework, right, around the planning system, yeah. right? Kind of the, 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 the nationalization of development rights in 1947, right, is the fundamental thing. So you can own land, but what you do on land, you need permission for, right? So that's kind of the basis of the planning system. So, so development rights are, are basically uh, are, are nationalized. You need, you need to get rubber stamp before you, you, you do stuff. And, and there's loads of questions there, right? To begin with, that made sense. And there was a small number of rules and the rules were clear and they made sense. And they talked about what maybe distances between buildings and uh, uh, kind of where you put dirty industry and things like that. And, and that was it. Right. And it was quite simple. And it kind of, the kind of whether it worked or not, I think it it, 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 it kind of worked. Right. Because, because, I mean, we still have cities like London kind of working relatively, uh, uh, relatively well. Yeah. In the, I think in those days, you're absolutely right. The early days, the heady days of, of the new planning system, but in that in those days, government was the key driver. So you know, government was saying, "We'll solve your housing problem. We'll solve your schooling problem. We'll solve your health problems. We'll solve we'll solve the problem with the poor." And um, I think it all changed in the 1970s when I suppose Thatcherism and Reaganomics kicked in, and all of a sudden it was big private. And that's that's, that's the point at which I think the planning system started falling over. It couldn't deal with the fact that it was a command and control model but had to deal with how you command and control big players all the time. And hence your point about sitting around a room, you know, 7,000 pounds a shot, dealing with the big players who weren't producing the kind of quality of places we really wanted, but we were forced to let them slip through the system. Yeah, it kind of, it, it became a bit of, a, of, of an act really, right? Because the planning system, like over decades, became more and more complex, right? Yeah. That where we need more and more information to do more and more things, right? And it just became this in, this incredible jungle of like, laws and regulations and that's just the planning system not to mention the building regulation system which is two things two yeah. weird divided bits of legislation which really are trying to do the same thing uh but but uh yeah it just became more and more complex to the extent which no one actually reads the rules no one actually uh kind of properly understand the rules we're all just kind of acting and kind of playing playing kind of playing along right with this thing that says look you've got a rule that says something like this so i've written a 400 page report which says why we're meeting that rule and what makes things particularly complex kind of uh, uh, in the uk is it's, it's a discretionary system so the rules themselves don't even apply right the rules are like well this is a rule unless you can justify otherwise right and that gives that that that, that creates this kind of very weird kind of kind of smoke and mirrors kind of uh, uh, industry of kind of consultants kind of trying to collect a lot of information so this is why we, we can't follow your rule. So I don't have, have a problem with rules if they're well designed. And I think this is a the interesting thing with technology is that it forces you to think about the rules a bit better. What are the rules? Because if you have good rules, you can have good bureaucracy. And if you use technology to automate things, you can actually get really good outcomes. The problem is now we have kind of the worst of both worlds. Yeah, I'll go along with that. Yeah. And then, then after that, you went into the ultimate bureaucracy with central government. 
Yeah, so so the work I was doing at Future Cities Catapult kind of we kind of we caused a bit of waves and kind of government started listening and say, well, this is quite interesting. Maybe 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 this is our next thing, right? Maybe we can do digitization uh, of the planning system and 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 that will that will be good for us. So uh, so yeah, so I joined a small team at the time uh, in what was then MHCLG. Uh, uh, it was just kind of a handful of people. Uh, interested in seeing right okay how can we how can we do something uh with 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 technology and and it, again it was it's pretty uncontentious right if you say look we want to use technology to make things better no one will say no right and i think this is what happened in government so like there's often lots of really contentious policy decisions but digitize on digital transformation isn't a contentious policy decision so we managed to kind of we built a big program of work and 90 million pounds secured about 90 million pounds of funding and 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 the program is ongoing now, and it's the kind of there's there's lots of interesting successes. It's slow and it's incremental, but there is some good stuff happening coming out of government uh, 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 because of that. I, I remember being uh, I don't know if you were involved in um, the I remember getting a passport renewed, um, and thinking God, this is going to be horrendous. And the actual experience of doing it digitally was shockingly brilliant yeah. exactly exactly which is why I, I can't remember when it was but but the gov.uk the website won loads of awards right because it was an incredible piece of design now you look at it nowadays most people think oh that's really boring right but mm. really like buildings what is intelligent about that piece of design isn't what you're actually seeing it's all the thinking underneath it right so what what government digital services did which was a small group of people who came in looking at government as a whole is they realized you know what most people don't really care what department you're from. They want to apply a pa for a passport, right? Or they want to register a death, death certificate or register a birth certificate or whatever, might, whatever it is they want to do. They don't really want to be to work out, well, okay, so so what, what department is a passport on, right? So what we're getting in government is we have like a, kind of some remnants of, of some of these people who are super smart and really understand digital and understand how to provide services. And they started kind of getting excited with this whole planning system, right? Yeah. And 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 that's how we kind of created this really good program of uh, of of kind of planning planning uh, digitization of the planning system. Well, thank you very much for that. And before we move on to the work that you're doing now and the really interesting um, block type company and uh, technology you have, one of the themes that we've been exploring with uh, our guests, with Maff and Ruth and mm -hmm. Seth, um, and I'm sure we will with the others, is this tension between being an insider and being an outsider. You want to bring about some change. And people like Maff and Ruth have decided we're going to stay on the outside. We're going to do these radical things. And whether or not uh, the the state or the local authority want to catch up with us, we don't really care. We're just getting on to, to do it. And you've had experience of being you know, deep inside as well as being an outsider. What would your advice be? What, what's your learning about that that because i mean our uncontentious conclusion is you need both it's really hard yeah and it's it's such a good question i mean i've always seen myself as an outsider right uh, uh kind of when i was working with kelvin i could never see myself working in government that was the worst thing ever yeah. how was i actually going to affect change but but somehow things kind of worked out like it's not i don't think any single individual can go into into a, a big complex organization and change things but within these big complex organizations, there's always kind of other people like you, right, who are actually interested in delivering some change and actually doing some things. And it's about how you connect these things, right? People like Paul Maltby and Paul Downey, who were at MHCLG at the time, who brought me in. I mean, these are people who actually wanted to, to do good stuff, not 
the whole the whole organization wasn't set up to do good stuff but a few smart kind of people you can actually kind of play the system a little bit uh, and and if you and and the impact that has it can then start enabling other outsiders so for example if you look like people if you look at people like Alistair Parvin at Open Systems Lab right yeah. they are working very closely now with Dluck uh, uh, delivering a lot of this digital planning system. And that's partly because I managed to get in there and say, look, here, there's some really good stuff here. You kind of elbow your way through it and you kind of arrange, you kind of, you bring your type of people into the system a little bit more. Whether the long-term impact is that we all become kind of ineffective civil servants or not, I don't know, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I think it's an interesting challenge actually is um, Mariana Mazakuta, we we'll try and get it on as, a, yeah. as one of our guests, wrote a book called The Big Con. When she's saying um, the consultancy um, business has infantilized government. In other words, we're not getting that experience in government. And I often said that the best experience I ever had was working for the public sector. I think you almost have to, you know, you, you almost can't be on the outside being effective if you don't have a bit of understanding of what happens on the inside. So to try and play that, you know, to make sure that you have that equal balance is, 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 is quite important. And you're absolutely right. Some of the some of the most creative people I found were in the public sector at one point in time. I think uh, the problem is it's 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 been given such a bad name. Everyone's trying to sort of put it down all the time. I remember when I was in, in Liverpool and we were uh, trying to, um, in a social enterprise I ran there, and we were trying to convince the local authority that they should bring together their regeneration policy. They're spending over here spending millions and millions of pounds on trying to get unemployed Liverpudlians back into training into work. And over here are letting go enormous contracts for uh, waste management, which yeah. uh, we were involved with. And we were trying to convince, well, if you brought those together and you shopped in a smarter way, yeah. you might get better services, more controlled locally, and real work for unemployed people in driving and uh, warehousing and, uh, and so on. And it came about for the great collaboration between the social entrepreneurs outside like me, yeah. and then people inside those systems who got it, who were almost sort of creating sort of liberated territory in which real creativity could happen. Yeah. And yeah. they knew how to sort of, you know, batter back the forces that would overwhelm something. And were also very shrewd at um, getting the politicians understanding right and then putting it into the the process that led to a big vote in the town hall that got it there. So I think there are, that's an example, it sounds like you you and her yeah. as well, where if you can get that collaboration going, but you need the people inside the exactly yeah. to create the space for it to happen. Yeah. I, I, and I think this concept of kind of liberated territories, I think I think really kind of kind of uh, uh, is, is, is a very good way to describe it because that's exactly what you're doing, right? So you're in there, you're trying to kind of play the system, you're trying to create some space for, for others to be able to come in and, to, and do the change that you want to do. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think, I, I spent uh, a couple of years advising the Scottish government as well on, 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 on similar types of things. And, and maybe a bit less successful in there, but as well, trying to do that, trying to kind of bring in the right people, trying to bring in the innovation. But it, but it's hard, right? Yeah. And it's also incredibly draining. Uh, uh, the, the time I was at, at, at DLUC or, or MHCLG, uh, we kind of, we went through a number of different ministers and we had to tell the same stories over and yeah. over again. We had to create the same outline business case over and over again. And we had to do yeah. the same things. And it's like, after after a few years, you're like, you've worked really hard and you've shifted the needle a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that can be quite frustrating. Put that in perspective. 16 housing ministers since 2016. Wow. 
It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, no wonder things don't move on. No wonder we have a housing crisis. And I think that the thing that I found, I found quite fascinating, even I'm look, even looking forward, is the planning system is probably the last bastion of command and control that we have in any industry. There's very few businesses that would run on a on a basis like the planning system runs. There's very few, in fact, even the army, you know, has has moved away from a command and control to much more an enabling leadership type role when it comes to doing things on the ground. Yet we've got the system which is so tightly controlled. And as a result, it's been arresting everything. It's been arresting development. Mm. So we've created, I've often said that the the problem we have in in housing is a self-inflicted problem. We've created the conditions to create this crisis. And we can't understand how to get ourselves out of this. Because for, for many politicians, it's too big an issue to deal with if they start dealing with it from first principles again. So it's an interesting challenge. So tell us about block type. Tell us how you went on to block type. Yeah, so so I think I think again, so kind of understanding the opportunity that the web kind of kind of presents, right? To, to, for us to address things like the housing crisis, this kind of very kind of broken kind of planning system, uh, uh, and 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 I think interesting that you refer you, you refer to to Maria Mazzucata's book, The Big Con, seeing kind of consultants in a way kind of like make a lot of money out of the problem, right? Yeah. Because if you want to do a roof extension in your house, you're going to have to hire consultants, right? First, you're going to hire consultants to figure out whether you need planning permission or not, yeah. right? That's the first time. you, And then you need a consultant to create a planning permission. And then you probably need a, a transport consultant to create a travel plan or whatever it might be. So, so there's kind of world of kind of consultants out there, uh, uh, which quite often, having spent my time at the GLA, reading a lot of these reports are kind of nearly copy and paste, Yeah. right? They're kind of saying the same thing and for a different address and yeah, this would be the impact, et cetera, et cetera. So I was really interested in saying, well, okay, what happens if we take some of this knowledge and put it online, right? I was thinking particularly in terms of architectural knowledge, right? So we're hiring architects to to to, to design buildings. And, and once you meet all the rules and tick all the boxes, the buildings are all kind of the same, right? Mm. And there's a good version of it and there's a bad version of it. So I was thinking, what happens if I start putting good buildings Plan floor plans of good buildings online. So people can start, instead of having to hire an architect and a planning consultant, they can just start moving things around themselves. They can just start uh, populating neighborhoods, populating sites, and instantaneously start getting some feedback on what is the population impact? What is the, some of the parking policies that you're going to have to meet? And what is the open space requirements? So bringing all that stuff, making it really, really easy and accessible for anyone to be able to do the work that at the minute I feel like is behind a, a paywall of professionalism, mm -hmm. right? The only way anyone can do anything is you have to hire consultants and and the prices will quickly escalate, right? And I think the idea with block type is that we don't have to get it wrong because we've we've got it, we know how to get it right. So can we just start getting it right now? Oh, where were you a year ago when we were planning our house renovation? Well, I'll tell you we had something. Exactly I, I, that. Yeah. Um, experience i was helping a, a guy across the road um to get two houses built 16 different reports needed for two houses in a concert crazy area. yeah and i wonder we have a housing crisis and the other thing that tends to happen is that all the big guys just seem to attract you know the big consultants to to write as you said write the standard report yeah. so that was what we're setting out to achieve is not is not controlling those big guys to do something better we're just formalizing their actions in many ways Exactly. As a result, the small guys lose out. We actually lose this ability of housing to be developed on an incremental basis, which it used to be. It used to be a highly distributed system. So uh, interesting to see where we go next. I, I think you, you quoted the government office you in had two or three different acronyms. What's that, MS, M MCLG? 
MHCLG, which then became DLUC, the Department for Leveling Up. It changes. So when in doubt, it changes its name. It changes its minister. It changes its name. And it changes. It, it hardly changes at all, quite frankly. Yeah. It's to sort yeah. of go around and do exactly the same thing. Oh, it's the a game, isn't it? Game, um, yeah. I, I was on your website, on your block type website. I think it's really, really, it's easy to use. And obviously, you, know, you talked about the... the it, the, the cleverness of what underlies some of the work that you did in government is clear the cleverness of some of the things that underline uh, underpin uh, block type so who is it aimed at who's the so, good, yeah, business model what you know where are you at with it yeah yeah i mean it's, it's a good question i mean we're a startup we're only kind of we're, we're, we're coming up to two years we're kind of we've bootstrapped the whole thing we've got a small team of five people we're all kind of working kind of between jobs kind of building this thing and we've built this piece of software very much an, an mvp a minimum viable product just to get it out there right and and it comes down to this frustration, the, the fact that how do you plan for housing, right? In this country, in theory, we need 300,000 homes a year. Uh, we probably need more than that. But that's only the tip of the iceberg, right? Over the next kind of decades, the, the level of housing need we're going to see globally is going to massively shift because of climate change, right? We're going to be seeing a lot more migration. Who knows what migration policies are going to be like, but we're going to need a lot more housing. And we need to be able to respond a lot faster, right? We can't sit and wait for 10 years trying to plan I don't know, kind of a, 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 a somewhere in the outskirts of Cambridge and doing master plan after master plan, which is kind of Kelvin knows a lot about. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I wanted to be able to create kind of some tools that allows you to, yes, do a master plan in 10 minutes and see what the impact is. If you don't like that, you can change a layout and see what, I, what the impact is, right? Uh, uh, how can we kind of, in a way, shift power away from this, this uh, uh, ecosystem of kind of, uh, uh, consultants and experts into the hands of of people who can who, who might have some better ideas who might want to do it themselves whether these are community land trusts a lot of sme developers are sitting up there against the big developers and they they, they can't afford all these consultants yeah. they so they can't really compete so the idea is, is is through block type we start kind of empowering a much wider group of people to be able to plan for housing rather than just kind of the usual five six big consultancies that's the massive small story there. It is just a captured, small story. captured perfectly. And just yeah. because I'm I'm involved in investment and maybe offline we could talk a bit more about this. Um, what is the model that underlines it? What is the is it yeah. bought by individuals? Is it bought by SMEs? How does it work? Yeah. So 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 we're 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 a, 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 a SaaS company basically. So it's a subscription model. Uh, we're exploring kind of different 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 ways of doing it. We launched we launched our first version of the product about six months ago. And quite quickly, we we had quite a lot of users, and we kind of had to slow things down a little bit because we wanted to kind of. We it was just an MVP. It's not. It's that classic, classic, Good news and bad news, everyone. Good news, we've got loads of users. Bad news, we don't have we've got loads yet. of users. <laughs> and 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 it's very hard for us to be able to service all these users through a bootstrap team, right? Yeah. So I think this is this yeah. is the, the 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 interesting challenge that we have now is like is like. People are asking us right, left, and center. Oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And we're saying, yeah, okay, but it's going to take us a while because our developer only does weekends, right? And our designer can only do kind of Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, and we're also then getting lots of interest from from uh, kind of the interest is kind of growing. So we've had people like like Peabody and lots of other really kind of much bigger developers uh, and housing providers come to us, ask for things because there is a need here, right? Mm. People want to be able to have to quickly test development, which is the role of the planning system in essence. But you don't want to be doing a seven thousand pound pre app and get your 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 huge kind of a team of consultants over and spend kind of twenty, thirty, forty thousand pounds just to get an, a no from the local authority saying no, yeah. that's way too dense or no, we don't want housing in the site. Or turn to be no answer because I mean the, the planning planning authorities outside of London are absolutely 
crisis-ridden at the moment. Yeah. It's impossible to get a decision. And therefore, their first default position is, let's just reject it. In other words, it's too difficult for us to deal with. Computer and says no. Computer says no. You know, it's, and, uh, and, you know, it's, you, and for a majority of people at that lower level, they choose not to go back and deal with it. So it's that thing about arresting development, you know, the system arrest development, which is strange because it should be a much more proactive, generative type of approach to, yeah. to planning rather than this restrictive, deterministic command and control model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of what you're saying goes back to the fact that professionals are not questioning things anymore. I mean, everyone's on this sort of consultancy rat race at the moment, you know, on that, that wheel. And it's almost impossible to have a debate around these sort of issues unless you step slightly outside the system. And once you step outside the system, you become the lone wolf in the system. You almost have to fight against it from the outside. It's quite a difficult thing to do. So, what but technology is a way of uh, te- jumping of over that. If you've yeah. got a, you know, a, a really good product that can scale enormously, this then is suddenly this you is will be listened to. Yeah. And, and I mean, a big, I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Susskind, who who talks about the future professions. Yeah. And 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 I mean, he 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 outlines it in this way that say, look, okay, so we've just had however many decades of professionalization of knowledge, where all knowledge lives in people. And then you have to pay people to give you the knowledge. Mm. But now the web has given us a different way to access human knowledge. We yep. can put it all on the web and we can access it all instantaneously. So now we're just learning how to do it. We're finding better ways to actually kind of access our knowledge, whether it's through chat GPT or whether it's through kind of whatever kind of uh, system it is. But I think there is a shift now that, that I think, in my in my opinion, will bring an end to this kind of these decades of professionalization of kind of uh, 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 knowledge and will completely change the dynamic on how we access kind of information and and no single person can know everything anymore uh, there's yeah. too much stuff out there there's too many too many details and stuff like that we can't rely on individuals kind of being the the funnel for this mm. you're so right i mean i'm i'm uh, involved and on the board of a um a, a health tech business called togetherall.com and our proposition in the um, mental health world is that um, in the early stages of, uh, you know, if you're not sleeping or you think you're drinking too much or you've got a problem with your eating or you just feel a bit mm. shit, that communicating with other people um, and being part of a community could stop you getting worse and ending up on medication and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's a technology that allows us to do it. So we've now got, we have this technology that allows thousands and thousands of people to connect with one another in a genuine peer-to-peer place and support one another in a way that was just impossible. Even 10 years ago, the technology Absolutely. really wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah. we, we now are able to you know, say, not only help lots of people, but also influence the debate around population health because there is no way that in the UK the NHS can address the scale of the levels of anxiety and, uh, and mental health challenges that there are. There has to be a, a technical component um, uh, to that. And it's very exciting to see you bringing that into the world of planning and uh, the built environment. Thank yeah. you. We're very proud of you, Ewan. <laughs> Thank you, Kelvin. No, it's very, it's very and, kind uh, of you. I'm really glad you, you've done this for the rest of your, your life and uh, I hope it all goes well. And um, 
Uh, Kelvin in full-on dad mode there. Full-on dad mode, yeah. <laughs> run, run, run. I gave birth to him. <laughs> yeah. You've done very and, well. Uh, and stay in touch and tell us where we can help, okay? Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I mean, as it kind of, we're now moving on to a, a phase of block type where, as I said, we've bootstrapped everything. We're going to start looking for investment. We're going to start looking for strategic partners and things like that. Now now I think it's time to scale. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, absolutely. If, kind of, if anyone's interested, kind of do get in touch. And remember, this is called Massive Small Stories. Um, so if you know of anyone else who wants to spread their word on how they've done things, um, how they've challenged the system and looked through the other side of the lens and done some amazing things, even if they struggle to succeed, just let us know and we'll, uh, we'll try and bring this out into the open. Absolutely, we will. Manny, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. 